This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to the Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. I am Soren Rearguard. We're joined, as always, in absentia, in a pickle, by Friedrich Pietsche, who's off researching uh, far and wide for his next book. It's a recipe book all about the spices of life, and it's called Cumin, All Too Cumin. <laughs> But keep your eyes peeled for him. He may be in the ether sometime soon. Welcome back. We're discussing today Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, a, sort of a classic of 20th century literature. And I'm going to turn it over to Carl uh, for a little bit because he's really an expert in this field of literature. And so he's going to introduce the book to us a little bit and tell us why he picked it out for a discussion on this uh, podcast about philosophy and literature. Yeah, thanks, Soren. I just thought it would be great to switch after we get this novel in the great small C conservative tradition from Dostoevsky, where something must be retained, some value or principle must be defended. I thought it'd be nice to pivot to a great novel in the sort of small L liberal tradition, which I would sort of define as an attempt to push outside of the bounds of normalcy or the accepted roles of goodness or the accepted values of society and to bring in someone or something that has gone beyond those bounds. And so to be a, a bit liberal in pushing one's values further, accepting something that has hitherto been seen as unacceptable. And I think Giovanni's Room is a pretty masterful look at trying to do that, trying to push outside of those boundaries. And one way you can really tell what makes a, a liberal novel in this tradition good or great is that it often comes up against serious criticism or it has difficulty in even getting published. So in spite of the great liberal novels of today being sort of already heralded and prized as they come out, I think something has changed since you know the middle of the 20th century when these kinds of novels were lambasted and uh, you had people like J. Edgar Hoover reading Giovanni's Room wondering, I think this is a, almost a direct quote, isn't Baldwin a known pervert? Deeply criticizing the fact that this book could be written and it's, it's a scandal. It's, it's not good. It should not be read. And you have the original reviewers for this book, which after Baldwin's first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, was very successful. He had an option from his publishers to get a second book. And they passed on the manuscript for Giovanni's Room. They did not like it. The first reviewer called it, quote, an unhappy, talented, and repellent book. And they brought in a second reviewer who confirmed this view, saying, I agree that we should not publish this. It is hopelessly bad, 
and would do Baldwin harm. And I think that it's these kinds of works that really challenge a specific ideal or a specific more of a time that make up this sort of great liberal tradition of novel writing. That's certainly something that's been the case for a number of novels in the 20th century in particular. You think about something like Ulysses by James Joyce, Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. And Baldwin is certainly in that tradition pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable and unacceptable. Did this particular book have any publication problems in the United States, like like something like Ulysses did, where it w- wasn't published by law, not not just by publisher preference, but by law? Or what, did, it, did it come up against that at all? Or I mean, it, it was challenged many times, but I, I don't know that there was a specific lawsuit involving the novel. It was high on the list of things that the FBI was very interested in reading. And it certainly, as with a lot of African-American writers in the 20th century, put him on this list of dangerous writers who are seen as sort of threats to the state and the status quo. Yeah, that's great, Carl. Thank you for that background. I'm going to give a short plot summary, as we like to do here at the beginning. Uh, for those of you who haven't read along, who just want to enjoy our lively conversations around the books. And then and we're going to talk through some of the big themes of the book as we do. So Giovanni's Room is pretty start, you know, startling for a book written in the 1950s, is a very frank and open discussion of homosexuality. It's the story of an expatriate American named David who's living in Paris and other parts of France, as Baldwin himself would end up doing for most of his adult life. And it follows his entangled love affair with an Italian waiter who's living, also living in Paris uh, named Giovanni. And then this back and forth that David undergoes within himself as to whether he's going to sort of embrace his life with Giovanni or return to his would-be fiance, uh, an American woman named Hella, largely centered, centered on the internal emotional struggle of David as he figures out. He clearly desires Giovanni in a way that he does not desire Hella although he he makes love to both of them. But in the end, he decides he can't imagine a life with Giovanni. And so he embraces life with Hella, and then Giovanni is arrested for a crime, is sent off to be killed, and David is so tortured by this that in the end he also loses Hella, who kind of discovers his past with Giovanni. And uh, the book ends with David alone trying to go back to America. In a famous ending... He says to her, you ain't no hella back, girl. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> so there's a lot of obvious historical importance to James Baldwin, and, and this book in particular, he's one of the, you know, the most lauded and most important African-American authors of the 20th century. He's also an important queer writer. But sometimes I think when we approach a work like Giovanni's Room, it can be easy to think about the historical context and then not think about a lot of the other things that are going on. It's a mistake to just think about this book as an important book, an only an important book, right? And not think about it as an interesting book in the way that it's approaching its various ideas. And so what I want us to do today is just to think through some of the ideas that are going on underneath the surface and give the novel its due as a philosophical work of literature. Where do you want to start with that, Carl? Well, I, I like what you say about giving it its due as a, as a work of philosophy. I think there are a lot of really interesting things that the book does just on the formal level that get a little bit 
sidelined, like you say, when we think about the fame and the greatness of Baldwin and the way his works have really become in the 2010s hugely influential and the stuff of Academy Award winning movies and important cultural dynamics and inspiration for the Black Lives Matter movement and etc. So yeah, going back to just sort of what's happening on the page, it's interesting formally to note that the, the book comes in two parts and there's a clear asymmetry to the parts, right? The first part's quite short and just a seeming falling for each other. Um, and the book uses that language of falling. And our main character, David, who cannot decide, is a worthy character for study and for inquiry and fallen in many ways, yeah. in many meanings of that word. But also, you know, there's some track with the biblical David in these affairs that he has. So anyway, back to the form. The asymmetry sort of helps us see the inability of David to get out of Giovanni's room, the physical location. And in a very sort of proto-postmodern way, the book's title sort of calls us to how the, the form of the book is itself a kind of Giovanni's room that we can't extricate ourselves from, or David can't really extricate himself from at the end. Let me just highlight one passage right at the end. So all throughout, we know that we're getting Giovanni's voice when he kind of speaks of himself in the third person. And he's an Italian in France speaking English to David, who's an American in France. David has, you know, a bit of French and perhaps he's fluent, but he, he prefers English and people defer to English around him. If you've ever been an American expat, you, you're probably familiar with this kind of experience. <laughs> but after contemplating that Giovanni is going to die, and we get this on the page, David imagining the final moments of Giovanni, we get this italicized text from biblical language. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And then we get the door is before him, there is darkness all around him, there is silence in him. I think it's a bit of a stretch, but I think it's definitely intended on Baldwin's part to imagine this being David thinking of himself in a third-person way, the him referring to David or Giovanni. And that ambiguity is definitely there. And earlier in the novel, David says he is ambiguity itself. So this changeover into a kind of their personal self-address or strange self-address he's mimicked how Giovanni talks about himself and we see that even at the very end in the very final line where he rips up a note and the note blows back onto him he's not out of the room and we as readers are meant to see that as sort of a metonym or a metaphor for an inability to face one's own most shameful or what one perceives to be one's most shameful acts. And an inability to understand that or see that in oneself means it becomes very hard to be a good person, a person true to oneself, or a person true to others around them. I really like that idea of the image of Giovanni's room pervading the book, because the actual physical space of Giovanni's room is a very confined, very claustrophobic space. And David, in some ways, feels trapped by it. 
Um, in, in some ways, it's a release for him, but in other ways, it is, it is a sort of prison. And so when he's, I like that reading of the ending where he's envisioning Giovanni in prison, but as you're suggesting, may also be seeing himself there, himself confined. And that, that claustrophobic feeling doesn't really go away in the rest of the book. Like the, the physical spaces in the book are always, always feel confined, even at the end, when he's gone off, he's gone off and rented a house in the south of France with Hella, his fiance, to get away from Paris because he can't stand being there. Even there, because he's there with her and is sort of hiding all of this other stuff from her, it's a very confining space. And he says he, they're constantly going out, trying to find things to do out of the house because they can't stand being in the house. And so there's a sense of confinement that's running throughout the book and kind of built in there from the beginning, I think. And that confinement is sort of coupled with this idea that David is is getting letters from his father and he's wondering when is he going to return home. And Giovanni muses on what home means for an American or for someone like David who's sort of unable to truly look at himself and see who he is. And he says, why you will go home and then you will find that home is not home anymore. Then you will really be in trouble. As long as you stay there, you can always think, one day I will go home. Beautiful logic, I said. You mean I have a home to go to as long as I don't go there. So it's sort of like a perfect paradox there. He has what he cannot have. And this inability to be A or not A, to sort of follow those those rules of thought, makes makes David, as he says earlier, ambiguity himself itself. Mm-hmm. And this indecision racks him to the point that he sort of he's culpable for pushing Giovanni over the edge and as someone who already exists on the on the margins in France in the gay community and he's sort of forced to do like unskilled labor at the behest of older men who take him on if they please it's assumed that it's David's having sort of really screwed over Giovanni that leads him to commit this murder for which he is sentenced to death at the end. And Giovanni himself is a relatively, he's an itinerant figure. He does not have a home, and that's why. And there is a sort of an interesting commentary there on maybe on European and American relations in that that's a theme running through the book. There's sort of the ugly American expats in Europe who, who maybe can't quite understand Europe, but then also captures something beautiful in their their sort of misunderstanding of it. And Giovanni, you know, on a personal level, he does not have a home because he left his peasant upbringing in Italy. He had had a woman fiancé figure who he had a child with, but the child was stillborn. And in the wake of that, he just leaves. He abandons and goes to Paris and then takes up this precarious lifestyle financially, a somewhat itinerant lifestyle. And David, even though he sort of plays around with that lifestyle, you know, and in fact, he meets Giovanni at a time when he can't pay his hotel bill and he's having to leave, he does have that sense of stability back behind. And then paradoxically, that's what makes him unable to be free in the way that Giovanni might be free, because he's bound to an inescapable sense of duty, in some sense, to his family, even though his family is not very good (laughs) from what we've seen. Yeah, and Giovanni makes a similar point where he says, you know, I know that you have this mistress, Hella, that you will perhaps go back to. But what what really pushes him over the edge is not that David has denied him for someone else that he loves. It's that David has denied him out of deep shame, that there could be no future for them as two men together is, is kind of what David says at one point. 
what kind of future would that even be? And Giovanni has gotten to a point where he sees any future between people as difficult and sort of them against the world, whatever those two people are. And David has a different sort of luxury, perhaps as an American, where if he goes home and he goes home in the right way to his father, he will be accepted. His inheritance will remain his and he will sort of be off to a bright, somewhat easy future. And it's precisely his not wanting that easiness that keeps him adrift on the continent for a long time. But it's also what disallows him to see that as a home or as a viable alternative. Carl, I want to return to something you talked about a minute ago, thinking about shame. Because in an earlier episode, uh, one of our Brothers Karamazov episodes, you gave us a really interesting dichotomy between guilt and shame. And I wondered if you wanted to think a little bit more about that now in the context of Giovanni's room. There's a nice shorthand definition. Think of guilt. You have been caught cheating on the test. That's a sort of proclamation of guilt uh, that would sort of invoke feelings of guilt in anyone, most likely. And then there's the statement, you are a dirty cheater. And that's meant to invoke shame response or feelings of shame. And those words, dirty, dirty, um, come up in David's thoughts about who he is and, and what he is if he's to live in this room with Giovanni at the end. And then the great twist that Baldwin puts on is that he only gets deeper into that shame once he has left it. And that's because he's chosen something that society has said is the more valuable choice but to him personally it's not and so it's a sort of existentially inauthentic choice to simply take the easier road or the road that will make his parents happy and in doing so he's only heaped more shame upon himself and i like that twist in the book both for its sort of existential philosophical truth that i think it has and also for this sort of staying with shame, there's a interesting philosopher, Sarah Ahmed, who sort of makes the claim that it's very dichotomous, very divisive, the feelings and the responses people give when they are put in a situation where they feel shame. Often they can act out violently and dangerously. And people think that like shaming certain kinds of people has led to a sort of racist response in American politics or something that, you know, if you shame one group, then they will come back and be even more violent than before. But Sarah Ahmed says that there's something about public reckoning as a nation or personal reckoning with one's failures that shame disallows you to sort of skirt that. And so justice requires a certain sense of recognition, and that recognition is sort of fast-tracked at times if one is put in a shame response situation. I wonder if that's the case in, with David, though, because it seems to me that his consistent problem throughout the novel, and one that's not resolved by the end, is his inability to make a choice more than anything else. I mean, even though... He, he's the sort of person who confronts these two options, and it's not even so much that he ends up choosing one over the other. He just sort of lets life choose for him, right? He chooses, literally, he sort of chooses the, pa the path of least resistance because he cannot bring himself to actually make 
a decisive choice. And so that's why he ends up basically alone, right? He, I mean, lets himself slide away from Giovanni for the sake of being with Hella because that's the easier, more imaginable path. But then he can't even keep himself on that path. He just sort of lets himself float around because he's unwilling to make a decisive choice. And it, it almost seems like in, for him, the shame paralyzes him. I do think that that's true, but I also think that he's sort of placed himself in not being decisive in a place where ultimately there'll be some sort of exposure to how he's been acting since he has been hiding his relationship with Giovanni from Hela after she comes back. And so Ahmed's point is that recovery is a form of exposure as well. And so sometimes in being shamed or being placed in a position of shame, that exposure can lead to recovery. I think there's something of that going on in the book. It's an interesting way of sort of staying with bad feelings and asking after this character has been through the ringer and is clearly in a space of terrible self-worth rather than just acting out instantly on that. What does that feel like and how do you how might you act differently if you've stayed with that for some time, a long time? And if you are sort of in this perpetual Giovanni's room, this longer or more sort of metaphysical Giovanni's room that exists beyond the actual space of it that I was trying to say is sort of there at the end of the novel. That's interesting too because it does strike me thinking about it now that there might be one way in which David is able to have a sort of reckoning with himself, which is on the page. Because this is, the other thing we didn't mention before in terms of the form is that this is a novel that is written in the first person. So very different from The Brothers Karamazov, where we started, which is a sort of quasi-omniscient or floating omniscient um, third-person narration. This is very much a first-person novel, and so we're trapped in the Giovanni's room of David's head, and as he's reckoning through things, but he does seem that he is able to give a fuller reckoning of his life and himself on the page than he is in his actual life. And so there's a sense in which maybe that reckoning happens through words and through recording that can't ha happen in life for him. Since we're talking about the written word, maybe I'll go ahead and say a word or two about the use of names here. There's a lot of resonance in the names of the book, and I want to think about a few of them. David obviously has, knowing Baldwin's writing, right, a kind of obvious biblical significance. King David, the king of the Israelites. And that's brought forward because Giovanni is the Italian form of John or Jonathan. And so what you have is a sort of an interesting double pun with Giovanni's name. Because Giovanni, what it instantly brings to mind, probably for most American readers with some level of cultural awareness, is Don Giovanni, the fam very famous Casanova figure from the early modern period, written about uh, the subject of several operas. People have written tons and tons about him. He's this famous man, uh, famous lover of women. He's got in the, the Mozart opera, right? He's got a list. His servant has to keep a list of all the women he slept with. And it's like thousands from different areas all around. He's like the Wilt Chamberlain of opera. And he's this really famous lover, but he seems unable to attach himself to anybody, which is an interesting reflection to think about because in the novel, it's really David who has problems attaching himself. He feels desire, but even at his the moments of most intimacy with Giovanni, 
Giovanni can sense that he's not fully there. He says that to him. He says, you're not really here right now. You're not connecting with me. He holds himself at a distance. And so in some ways, it's David who's the, the, the Giovanni, Don, the Don Giovanni figure here. And then at the same time, Giovanni Jonathan brings to mind the biblical figure of Jonathan, who is the friend of David. He's the son of King Saul. He has sort of every reason to hate David, who comes in and takes over his father's kingdom, denies him the kingship. But they have this very close friendship. I want to say one more thing, which I think there is a sort of interesting other pun going on here, which is speculative on my part, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that has to do with the figure of Hela, who's got a very strange name, right? Not a very common name, Hela. And what it makes me think is this. It brings to mind, if you add an S on the end of it, Hellas is the, the name for Greece in um, the ancient world. And what that makes me think is that there's a sort of war going on between the biblical and the, the Greek in terms of sort of ways of knowing. And there, there's a sense, and this is obviously stereotyping, but I, but I think there's some resonance here. There's a very famous quote from Irenaeus, the church father, who says, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And he's sort of posing this problem of how do faith and reason go together? Right? What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And I think that, I have no idea if Baldwin is playing on this, but I, I like the idea of this bringing a sort of resonance to David's choice between the sort of rational, rational choice of Hela, who represents sort of a stable future and an acceptable future to his family, and the sort of leap of faith that it would require to imagine a life and embrace a life with Giovanni. So I think there's, a, there's an element of how do you ultimately know that David is faced with? Do you know with things that are right in front of you, or do you know through a sort of an embrace of what seems absurd in the moment? Yeah, you, you are making me think, too, of that famous Matthew Arnold quote from Culture and Anarchy. Hebraism is the belief that Socrates is at ease in Zion, something like that. And, <laughs> yes. and what's it contrasted with? Hellenism, perhaps? Hellenism, yeah. It's, it's contrasted with Hellenism. Where he's not at ease in Zion? or I, I forget. Yeah. Sorry. I don't remember exactly. Also, I, I, I fact-checked myself here. It's Tertullian that that quote comes from, not Arrhenius. I, I think you're right, though, Soren, that... Hela is definitely punned on in some ways. And in my edition, there, Jacques, Jacques gives a really nice speech, and he uses helas, H-E-L-A-S, in the, the way that it's a French word, meaning alas, or unfortunately, or something. Only five minutes, I assure you, only five minutes, and most of that, helas, in the dark. And if you think of them as dirty, then they will be dirty. They will be dirty because you will be giving nothing. You will be despising your flesh and his. And this is Jacques responding to David sort of waffling about if he loves Giovanni or if this is love or if he could even feel love for a man. And Jacques, you know, is sort of one of the the older gay men on the scene, you know, kind of like a um, John Waters type, perhaps. He knows what's up and he can read people very quickly, right? And the whole sort of tragedy of David throughout the novel is that everyone can read him right away. Why is he in this area? What is he doing? He thinks he's just a bon vivant in Paris having fun, experimenting with different people and seeing new things. And perhaps it'll go a little farther than that, but that's kind of as much as he's thought it through. Whereas everyone else kind of knows where this is going to end up. And even Hella, by the end, even though she seems so ignorant the whole time, but when she finally sort of catches him out, 
she's like, yeah, I think I really knew the whole time, like, that this was going on, and I just wasn't wasn't willing to sort of reckon with it. There's an interesting point there, too, um, that's been made many times in the criticism, literary criticism of this novel, is that, is he a gay or queer or bisexual figure? And I think, given all of the, uh, the sort of logical ideas in the book and their truck with bivalence uh, in logic it strikes me that he's a more bisexual character and, and that's precisely his indecision because it's not much of a designated term at the time you are either of this milieu with Jacques and Guillaume and, and Giovanni and you're clearly gay or you are not and you're straight right there's there's not some medium place between the two that's what the ambiguity of David renders an impossible state, right? He can't be both. So thinking about, if we think about the the resonance of these names, and the, in particular the David and the Jonathan resonance, it adds an interesting layer because the other element that's running through, thread that's running through the book, that I think it's easy to miss because we focus on the idea of romantic love or erotic love, however we want to parse that, is is the idea of friendship that's running through. And David, in a lot of ways, is what makes his failure so complete is not just that he fails to choose the right lover or make a choice about that, but that he fails to be a good friend to anybody, really. He's got this memory that haunts him of his first gay encounter with a guy who was his best friend, basically, in, uh, when they were teenagers, and then he just abandons him because he can't deal with the feelings, again, the feelings of shame. And then you have this idea running through that he can't seem to be a good friend to somebody like Jacques, who he can use and get money out of, but can't seem to care for on the level of friendship. And then also with Giovanni, right? It's not just a failure of romantic love, it's a failure of actual concern and friendship. And the same thing happens with Hella. They have a sort of series of conversations about the relation between men and women and to what extent they can know each other. And Hella seems very skeptical that men and women could have anything approaching a sort of friendship. And David seems to, even if he maybe pushes back on that a little bit, seems to fundamentally agree with that. And so I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of David as being a failure at the level of friendship or affection or something like that, on top of all this other stuff, because there's a sense in which David might have been able to better navigate the situation if he were able to think about other people as real people to whom he had some sort of duty of friendship rather than as essentially objects, which is what he seems to do a lot in the book, is to think about people for their use value for him or for the pleasure value he can get out of them, but not as real people with whom he might have an actual encounter the demand the demands something of him he's unable to see people as potential friends whether they are potential lovers or not and that's crystallized in a moment where he sort of he needs to prove his masculinity to himself but hella is away and so he finds a, a woman that he sort of knows from around this area who's also an expat yeah. and just sort of sleeps with her and instantly is like ready to leave the second it's over and just sort of humiliates her in his inability to give anything to her other than you know you were something i used you were a person that i turned into an object for this time and now goodbye and, without she's, even and she's fully aware and she's fully aware of it and that's what makes it a very heartbreaking right scene, that's so. a very sad scene yeah. yeah yeah what you said too about his conversations with hella remind me about my my point about asymmetry so i i take their whole 
discussion to be one of there's this asymmetry in society between men and women. This is Hella's point. And for her, she needs to be seen as with a man in order to be seen as socially valuable. And it's only then that her opinions matter, her brains matter, etc. And there's a, there's a wicked irony in that, right? Because it's that exact same thing that David cannot understand or cannot imagine to be something that isn't filthy if it were him if he were with Giovanni you know if he if he were with a man in spite of the fact that that's still you know slightly different from what hell is trying to argue and those sort of double and triple layers of what's being said I think are really interesting Soren and it's precisely when the cover story to Hella that David gives as to why he lived in Giovanni's room is that they were friends there's a nice double layering of meaning there which is this is a lie that he moved in with him to be his friend but it's also not just a lie to cover their erotic relationship it's also a lie to cover the fact that he couldn't countenance that as a friendship relationship though for Giovanni it was as well so it's like a double betrayal there and it's veiled in this conversation they're having without really having it about what his true relationship is to Giovanni. So those levels of doubled and tripled like layers of meaning, I think, are something that really makes this a great novel as well. So nearing the end, we get this wonderful little phrase, too, that also heightens my reading that there's something going on with the form of this book being a room itself. And David says, inside me, something locked. I, I cannot have a life with you speaking to Giovanni. And it's in this moment that we see there is something about David that he has locked up and he has been unable to open up about throughout the book. And we don't really know if he's ever going to open that lock and get out this truth of himself, which is just a a sort of root existential authenticity, an ability to choose what he in fact wants to choose with his life, not necessarily regardless of all consequences, but regardless of what someone else thinks he ought to do. And for Baldwin, you you really get a sense throughout all of his writing that this is like a, a very core moral imperative. A self unknown to itself cannot be moral, or at least it cannot be the kind of self to be relied on to help other people in the world. And that kind of self can only sort of flow in the river of cultural norms wherever they may flow and so so what makes this sort of a great liberal small l novel is you know there are those books and those people who are willing to know themselves regardless of what that cost might be to the sense of social norms out there and then sort of stand outside of that that flow of things and tell us where it's going and if it might end up at a waterfall that's really good. And that was you know, certainly the case in not only in Giovanni's room, the book, but in James Baldwin's life as well. He was that figure who was willing to embrace himself. Exactly. And to stand outside, even if that meant literally in the case of him having, you know, leaving the United States, living outside of his home in order to do that. And he knew that this kind of book itself and there's the sort of more of these um, postmodern layers heaping up here he knew that in writing this book itself he would be doing that he would be putting himself 
way out there. People in people he was familiar with and loved would would not approve of this book, um, not approve of the views or the ideas about authenticity that were expressed in it. Um, yeah, and to that end, I think Michael and Dace has got this great quote. It's a blurb on my copy. If Van Gogh was our 19th century artist saint, James Baldwin is our 20th century one. <laughs> uh, and I always like that. I think that's kind of the point you're making there too. All right. Well, thank you so much, Carl, for leading us through this very rich text. So many layers. Because the writing is in first person and it's not a very flashy text in a lot of ways, it has a certain surface simplicity to it, but I think a rich depth underneath. So thank you for helping us unpack some of those layers that that are going on. Baldwin's writing style is that short, clean style that is often mistaken for being surface or simplistic. I think he's got a line, a sentence should be as clean as a bone. It really is a a style that allows for a lot of density underneath the surface and a lot of layering and a lot of impact too. Like the emotional impact of moments is very strong because there's not all this like foo-for-all going on 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 the outer edges. So. Though we like we like the foo for all too. Oh, I love and, the foo for all. Yeah, I'm I'm more of a I'm more of a froofy writer than and reader, but I do appreciate it when it's when it, a well done to the bone style like that. That's good. Well, we're gonna wrap it up for the, this week. Coming soon, our next episode, uh, our next main episode is going to be on Iris Murdoch's book, A Severed Head. It's a little bit less violent than it sounds, but it is a very strange and wonderful and thorny text. It too is sort of contemporaneous with Baldwin's book, mid, mid-20th century book, but very different in style and tone. It's a kind of a dark comedy about social relations in Britain. It's wonderful. It's got a lot going on. We're going to maybe pair that a little bit with um, a piece of literary criticism from Iris Murdoch called Against Dryness. It's a wonderful, I think one of the best pieces of literary criticism of the 20th century. Uh, So we're going to be running that back next time with Iris Murdoch. Uh, We hope you will join us. We'll read along if you can get your hands on a copy of that book. And you can certainly find the essay against dryness online. It's very easy to find. We will also be doing uh, more Patreon-only episodes about movies. We're about to record one of those right now for uh, patrons only. I'm excited about this one. It's going to be good. Uh, You won't want to miss it. So as always, a reminder to follow us, to subscribe on Patreon, patreon.com slash Karamazov to become a patron and have access to those wonderful film episodes. You can also follow us on social media, facebook.com slash Karamazov at TheReadersK on Twitter. And you can email us uh, any questions you have, TheReadersKaramazov at gmail.com. We're hoping to sort of start to incorporate some reader questions, so send those along if you have them. Until next time, why don't you... Play us out, cat keyboard. Oh, those Russians.